Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have Joy Joseph Abhisar, who's the CEO of Mask. Mask is building a cloud-native mortgage technology infrastructure to help lenders increase capacity, reduce costs, and strengthen operational controls. Joy earlier worked with Amber Capital and Pediment Group and moving as well, and he's done his BSc from EHL. A big thanks to Rob Dominic from Further for the introduction. Welcome to, wel- welcome to the show, Joy. Hi, Rohit. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, uh, uh, Joy, you have an interesting journey. You, uh, you're now building Mast and you worked in uh, Amber Capital. How was the entire journey, you know, you... Uh, uh, you know, you're born in, in uh, Lebanon and, you know, you uh, you grew up in Switzerland. What was the entire journey all about and what caught you interested in, in, in this world of startups? Yeah, um, very, very interesting question. So um, I'm born in Beirut, Lebanon. I grew up there. It's uh, it was a I grew up in the, the middle of civil war and then I had I had to leave when I was just about to finish high school. And so when I studied in Switzerland, um, I studied, you know, I did Bachelor of Science in, in business I, with a focus in corporate finance. And then I started working um, on what used to be the risk arbitrage trading desk of Societe Générale back in New York. So I started my career just before the crisis hit, the 2008 crisis hit, uh, mm-hmm. before Lehman Brothers went under. So it was a very pivotal moment of finance. And I was really interested in becoming a trader. So um, for the simple reason that um, it's a very high, um, highly emotionally um, rewarding uh, learning experience when you're young. I wanted to be exposed to money managers. I wanted to ex- be exposed to high intensity environment. And this is what led me there. So I, I went and I started working at Amber Capital as a trainee back in their office in New York. And then I grew up the ranks, stayed there for nearly a decade. And when I left, I was co-heading trading globally based out of London. Um, I learned a lot. And uh, being on the buy side, I learned a lot what management did, how founders did when they IPO their companies, because I was involved in a lot of merger and acquisitions, um, deals, etc. but on the buy side in investments. And I really fi- found it fascinating. Um, and I was a trader for a long time. It was, I was getting a bit tired in a sense that it is a high intensity environment. After a while, I needed some change. And I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My mom is an entrepreneur. My dad is an entrepreneur. And for me, um, independence is a very, very highly important trait in life. And I wanted to be independent. It means that when I turned 30, I wanted to make sure that when I'm 45, 50, I'm independent. I'm the master of my own fate. So being an entrepreneur, whether a small or a big one, this was the route to go for me. And I learned a lot being a trader. And actually, this helped me a lot in what I'm doing today. So when I left Amber, I was a bit, you know, a bit confused of what to do with my life. And then I've always been very tech savvy. I, I When I was in Amber, I did... Um, I led projects and in, in creating algorithms with engineers and, and, and a lot of this stuff. And I love building the side of, this side of, of, of mixing technology and finance. So this led me to do a coding bootcamp. So I did a coding bootcamp called Le Wagon, which is great. I loved I learned how to program properly. And on the back of that, I, I co-founded a company called Moving with, with two founders that I left quite quickly on because I didn't, I didn't think I was the right person to solve that problem. 
which led me to uh, joining a startup accelerator called Antler. And this is where I met my two other co-founders, Rob and Henry. And the three of us decided to work on MAST. Uh, we had a complementary skill set. The three of us um, had some sort of finance slash technology background. Um, and then we, 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 we knew that mortgages is a very big industry to transform. I won't use the word disrupt because it's, it's not, you don't disrupt in financial services, you transform, highly regulated environment. It's very hard to do things overnight. Everything takes time. And we knew that now was the right time. I mean, we started mass a week before COVID hit. So we started working together before COVID hit. And then we raised our first round of funding in June 2020 was when we incorporated the company. And that's when we started working on MAST. Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, you talked about being a trader. I was a retail stock trader, trader just like you have in Charles Schwab. And it does, it is exhausting. It does take a lot of time. But, but, but do you think... Uh, uh, you know, if you were starting out your career now and, and the listeners, you know, young listeners who want to be founders, do you think one should work in a financial company in order to understand about finance? Can they can they transform uh, or can they help build something if they haven't worked in a, in a you know, fintech or a financial company? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's not for no reason that you see a lot of great founders who work in investment banking before, work in consulting. And the only reason, actually, they end up having, you know, very good chances of becoming good founders is because you're exposed to things. Being exposed to things is very important. And you don't get this chance if you go in industry. If you go in industry, you end up doing one thing, um, you know, one thing, and you have to move up the ranks. And you don't get this overview from a business perspective that you get quite in junior positions when you work in an investment bank or a consulting company. So obviously, I think this will help. And also something that's very important is just gives you the discipline to work hard and work with other people who are very intelligent as well, and then get in the trenches. And not a lot of industries are that tough. I mean, you go investment banking, it's long hours, I mean, 80, 80 90, 100 hours a week, and no one complains. It's, you know, other industries, people work 50 hours, they complain. It is the environment that makes you tough and gives you the grit to go forward. Now, having said that, some of the amazing founders have started companies directly out of uni or school. And the, the, the positive side that they get to that is that they don't get this negative aura that you get while working in other businesses in a sense that you get some what I want to call positive naivety, which means mm -hmm. that you think everything is possible and you're going to try and do it. And only reality will tell you if you can do it or not. Yeah. Which, if you go work with in banks or in, in consulting firms, you end up building these biases because of experience, which you will have to undo some of them if you want to start a company again, because there is some sort of, ir of irrationality involved in building a company because you're, everything you're doing, the odds are against you. Mm. Um, whether you're, you know, trying to raise money or trying to sell to a customer or lifting an idea off the ground, the ideas are stacked against you and you have to push through them. And uh, so, did, you know, the, the two sides of the equation get the advantage of. But I mean, for, for me, it was definitely a very positive experience. Quite interesting. And what are some of your uh, you know, biggest takeaways from working with, with a company like Amber Capital? Uh, and, you know, how does it shape your, your mindset? Um, yeah, again, like I had the chance 
to work on the buy side, what we call the buy side in trading means right. that we were not just executing orders on the behalf of clients. I was one of the clients for the big, uh, the big trading desk in the banks. And basically we, take, we took positions in companies. So I saw, you know, what is my, my old CEO who was a prominent trader getting involved in, you know, in proxies and shareholder meetings and trying to shift things to the better for to unlock value in the companies. And I had to I had the chance to be the, the hands and the eyes of my company in the market to actually try and build this positions and build derivatives positions around that, which gave me a lot of insight that you don't really get at junior levels unless you get to C-suite and not even C-suite, but like really CEO and, and deal makers kind of environment. So I had the chance to see that very early on, which gave me, I think, a good overview and a good base to structure companies and know what not to do when very early on to make sure at least we're trying not to, um, you know, give away too much equity, um, try, for example, not to just raise money for the sake of raising money, understand which share class to, to get, you know, to, to get to give to your investments, all this sort of stuff. If you haven't been exposed to it, you, you know, you usually get exposed to it in trading. All this is bringing me lots of, of wealth and knowledge that I wouldn't have learned in anywhere else. And this is number one. And I think number two is really being in a position where you do so many things at the same time. Um, the, it's, it's funny. There's a thing about Trader where we, we, that we say about us is that we all built short attention spam. And it's true. I think after 10 years of being nearly 10 years in trading, my attention span is shorter, but I can do 20 things with a very high intensity at the same time. Um, and I think all traders or ex-traders would agree with that because what we do is, you know, very, very important, is very costly if we make a mistake. One mistake can cost millions of dollars to, to the company. Um, so you need to be sharp. You need to be focused. But at the same time, you're working on 10, 15, 20 different trades at the same time. So you need to make sure that every, all the dynamics, you understand all the dynamics of each position, et cetera, but also how to strip out all the noise that is non-essential. And I think this skill set, um, I'm, I'm bringing it in my position now. And I know I'm like, okay, what's the one, two, three, four things I need to focus on? And then I make an effort to not focus on the rest because it will not move the needle for me to get from position one to position two. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I love your answer. I remember, you know, when I was uh, stock trading, obviously this was retail, uh, brokerage, uh, we, were, we were supposed to do multiple different things, speak to the customer and look at the trades and all that. I, I totally love your answer. And uh, Joe, you know, we, we earlier discussed and, uh, and you, made, uh, you mentioned something which is very interesting, which is banks want to be fintech and fintech wants to be banks. Well, why do you think, you know, banks, even though they have all the financial leverage in the world, why haven't they disrupted the fintech industry? Why haven't, uh, you know, they, they created technology uh, which should have disrupted the, uh, the, the financial industry? Yeah, that's a good question. The, since, you know, when you look at the last 10 years and the, you know, the evolution of fintech, all the fintech, mainly the fintechs coming in and, and really doing, you know, putting pressure on the banks are fintechs that are bettering the user experience for the consumer on the surface. So, you know, look at the, the Revoluts, the Monzos, um, the Wise, all these, all these companies that came and changed you know, make things that were a pain point in the banks of how you dealt with a bank and made it a bit easier. 
um, they came and the way they did it because they were not, uh, they didn't have the same infrastructure as a bank. And a bank, because it's heavily regulated, there's a lot of processes in place. You can't be that agile in building technology. And let's be honest, building technology is not the core bank, the, the core scale of a bank. Now, this is slowly and slowly shifting more and more. But for banks, it's very hard because they have so many things they need to focus on. They cannot be building technology for every part of their business. It's just simply impossible. They have you know, one huge engineering team that deals with a lot of the things. They can't be you know, focusing on saying, we're going to build a training platform. We're going to build the retail platform. We're going to build the... It's just, it's just simply impossible. Now, when I say banks are becoming fintechs is because now they realize that if they don't do that, you know, it's more of the cost of, if we don't do something, we're going to lose consumers. So because of the other fintechs that came and said, now it's so easy to get an app, to do this on your phone. Now these fintechs set a bar of expectations to the consumers that the banks cannot ignore anymore. So the banks now need to up their game and they did, they are, I mean, look at Chase. What Chase did is incredible in the last in the last couple of years, I mean, if in less than a year, I think they got a billion in deposits. Unless um, uh, no fintech can actually do that because no fintech will get that amount of funding, and no fintech that has that balance sheet to support this sort of you know of thing. And you see, so the, the banks are catching up, um, and that's why. And I think in reality, in the next five ten years, they're both converging to becoming the one and the same. Uh, so some banks will die. Some fintechs will die, banks, and they're both probably going to become the same. And, and if you look at the, the, the current prominent fintechs, they, be, they became like the, the, I won't say the dinosaur, but they became like the institutions they're trying to remove. So when you look at some of them, they started 10 years ago, no fees for free instantly. 10 years later, there's a fee for this, there's a fee for that, the customer support takes five days. So they end up realizing that they're becoming exactly like the same bank because financial services is very, very back-end heavy infrastructure. Uh, as much as you want to do and change and make it easy to consumer, it's legally heavy, it's uh, regulatory heavy, it's ops heavy, and all this takes time and effort and a lot of know-how. And the transformation and the background takes a lot of time as well because the system relies on banks. You cannot come say, I'm going to post the banks and, you know, and, and, you know, and make a rehaul and change things. So you need to change things while you still offer the service to the consumer. And this is what makes it super, super hard. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Interesting. And, uh, you know, we, we had Jake uh, Gibson, who's, who's the founder of uh, uh, Nerd Wallet and, and, and we see that uh, $100 million bid at War Ventures who came at episode number 191. And he mentioned something very interesting, which is uh, every company will become a payments company. Do you agree with, with this statement that, you know, every company, regardless of whatever industry they are, uh, would be a payments company? Um, I can understand his point from two different angles. Either you're saying that every company 
is going to technically be able to process their own payments themselves right. using some sort of embedded payment technology. Or you're saying that there's some sort of, because of, I don't know, the new technology, crypto, blockchain, everything that's out, saying that now we don't need the intermediary anymore. You know, we can do our own transaction and sell this. I think both are fine. I think we're really going into the embedded finance is becoming more and more prominent. Um, but I still think we're not that, you know, we're still not that, we're still not there yet in a sense that because even if you create embedded finance, this embedded finance infrastructure needs to be maintained and pushed and everything. So in a way, yes, but in a way, no. I don't know if this is really clear because it's the same as in if you look at Shopify, Shopify, for example, for, for e-commerce is saying you're becoming your own company. I mean, at the end, yes. What they're doing really is just removing a complex of la of of, uh, of comp uh, uh, layer of complexity to the business, so that the business is can focus on their core. And I think this is where the world is heading. Meaning that a business now we're pushing, we're going more and more in the areas where you, as a business, you should focus really on your core business and outsource the rest and get specialists in each vertical to come and add to your business. So you become like some sort of a mixed mishmash of puzzle of, let's say, use X for payments, X for a KYC, use X for HR, X for managing onboarding and Y. And every vertical is a different company powering you to do that. Interesting. And, uh, you, you know, you, you're early stage startup and we have a lot of listeners who, you know, looking to either start the business or they're looking on growth strategies. How did you land your first uh, bank customer yeah. So before starting, I think it's very important, you know, that founders chase a real problem instead of chasing, a, uh, instead of building a solution and finding a problem. You see this happening a lot of the times because especially in B2B, you have 80 to 90% chances of your product to change, but the problem will always be the same. So when there's a problem and you, when you, the founder identify a gap, it's going to be there. Now, you can find different ways of solving the problem, which will enable you to, to do a problem. When, when we started MAST, we knew there was a very big problem in industry, which is the processing of application. It takes so much time, okay? This is a problem. You as a consumer or a borrower, we have to wait 40, 50, 60, 70 days to get a decision or mortgage application. Um, that's a problem. That's a major problem we wanted to solve. And it, there's, in reality, there's not one solution. It's not, we're not going to be the only solution for that problem. We, we want to become a big part of the solution, but there's so many stakeholders involved that it's very hard to solve. But just attacking this, meaning that it gives us multiple angles to come and attack this problem. So once we start interviewing, you know, the ecosystem, you know, a lot of intermediaries and brokers, because the mortgage market is 80 to 90% intermediary than all the banks and lenders and specialist lenders. Um, it took us 18 months, like nearly 12, 18 months to get our first bank for the simple reason that for an early stage startup, it's very hard to go from zero to one with a bank because there's a lot of data protection involved. There's a lot of infrastructure, um, tick boxes involved. The bank needs to know that you're capitalized enough, that you're going to survive. Um, so most 
mo- most of the time startups end up doing pilots that don't lead anywhere. And unless you're a repeat founder that has had major BVC backing, so you, you start an idea with 5, 10, 15 million of investment, then the banks are a lot more confident to do business with you. Now, we, um, I, won't, I won't hide it in a way in a sense that I would say we persevered in trying to convince some, some people, you know, some of the banks to, to do a project with us. And timing and luck worked for us with our small lenders because our solution was perfectly solving a problem that was really imminent for them at the time. And for them, it was a low risk of giving it a try. So the, the, the stars aligned so that the timing worked. And I think this is very important because when you look at a lot of the businesses that happened in the last 10 years, they're very often not the first, you know, the first movers. It's because the first movers came and the timing was not right. And then when they came, then the timing was much better. And then either the customer was more, the, the, the environment was more mature and the market was more mature to receive this idea. And I think this is how we got started. And then luckily for us, we get the chance to build our product with direct feedback from the lenders we, we, we serve. Uh, which hasn't been done much in the mortgage industry. Uh, all the, the usual, the usual um, technology providers have all built things and then went to the banks with their skills. And we were like, we, we have a pretty good idea of what we want to build, but who better than our customers to tell us what they want in the product and do it as we go, um, which we think is amazing. Yeah, it's, no, it's always great to have customers, you know, sharing the fe- feedback and, you know, it helps you build great product. And uh, I want to talk about, you know, uh, about hiring. You know, what, what, is, what does high performance mean to you, especially for, for your employees and in, in your business? And, you know, since you've been scaling up your business, how has it changed over time? Um, hi, this good, it's a good question. For me, high performance is completely independent from result. Um, there's... Uh, there's a famous NFL coach that said, and I forgot the name, the name escapes me right now. Uh, no, sorry, basketball coach was uh, John Wooden, who was an NCAA basketball coach. And he wrote an amazing book called The, Sc- the Score Will Take Care for Itself. And maybe yeah. I'm mishmashing the, the, the title, but this means that you need to forget about the result. You can only focus on the variables you can control. And whether in business, sports, it's the same thing. Um, you need to focus on the in business on the processes. On the processes, this is the only thing you can control. You cannot control the outcome. So you need to always figure out a way of doing things better and better and better. And there's always a way. So as long as you keep this relentless obsession of trying to make all the important processes better, then the score will take care of itself. Then technically you should be able to do better. And sometimes... It will take time. So maybe you will have to wait. For example, us, it took us a time to get our first customer. At a certain point, we didn't know if we're doing the things right or not. It took some sort of leap of faith and perseverance to get there. But um, now looking back, we think that we've done something right on that end. But still, it's not the best. We know we can do it faster. We know we can make it better so that the next clients are going to, we're going to get them faster. And we were, it's a constant work in progress. It's never, it's never finished. Got it. And especially when, when you're scaling a business, uh, you, you know, what are the first things which, which break down, uh, especially when, you, when you're looking to build, build the right sort of culture? 
Yeah, I think it's always the people element because, um, um, yeah, because if you look at, for example, Reid Hoffman said, every time you triple the number of people in your company, you need to completely uh, start from scratch again your communications method. And I think, and I completely now, and I completely start to understand what he meant with that. It means that when you're three people or nine people or 27 people, the way you run your company is completely different. So you have to change everything from the ground up, mainly because um, when you scale and you bring on more and more people in the company, they don't end up having the full picture or the same kind of vision of what you, where you want to get to. And communicating that vision and communicating the goals becomes harder and harder the more you add people. Because yes, you have a goal statement, you have a vision statement, but to really intrinsically understand how they'll have to behave in their job to achieve that goal is very tough. And then the more you add people, especially if you do it very fast, it ends up being very challenging to transmit it properly. This is why companies that hire a bit more slowly have a more sustainable growth than companies that hire way too fast. And then they end up being in a place where, you know, you hear some of the big CEOs and founders now who had to grow very quickly because of, you know, their, their business booming. You look at some of the crypto business in the last few years, they had to grow so much so fast that they, they didn't even know if they transmitted this correctly to the employees and if everything was aligned. And I think this is the hardest part. It's really the communication and the alignment. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Uh, you know, you work for some very high-quality companies. Uh, and in your experience, you know, what is the best way to retain speed and and, and grow with, with scale? Um, that's a good question. I don't think I have the an amazing answer for it. But I think for me, it's sustainable growth is very important. I mean, you need to grow fast, but it's better to grow 80% less, yeah, sorry, 20% less fast but be in control of your growth because when things turn sour, you'll be in a much better position to control things when things go wrong. And I think this, this is something that comes with a, with a trader's mentality. And this is something, for example, I get from my training days is that when you take a position, you always have to think about the worst case scenario, worst case scenario, what happens, what happens. And I, I, when I look at the environment, I see a lot of founders, for example, in the past few years, hired so much, and then now they're laying off 20%, 30%. And, you know, a lot of them, this is outside of their circumstance, so I understand, but this, I would love to not be in this position one day and try and say, okay, I'd rather hire a bit less, grow a bit more slowly, but make sure that if things turn sour, I can position the business so much more faster to, to withhold these, these, these bad situations and bad environment. Um, this comes with like some sort of a defense mentality that I have because any great business will go through a crisis. It's a, it's a fact. If you're here long enough, you're going to go through a business, through a crisis. If you're here 10, 15, 20 years, 
you're going to be go through a market crash, you're going to go through a recession, you're going to go through something. And you want to make sure that you get prepared for that day while at the same time capturing the growth. So it's about finding this, this balance. Um, yeah. Interesting. And uh, did you have any, you know, hiring mistakes to fire someone or do you make a mistake with you and any learnings you want to share with them? Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is hiring is one of the most, is the hardest job yeah. to do in, a, in any business, not only in a startup, because it's just, it's a people element. And uh, apparently the best hiring, people who make the best hiring, you know, averages in the world still don't, still are below like 50% or around 50%. So one or the two, of two hires in average you make is a bad hire. Um, not in the sense that it's a bad person, but it's not necessarily the, 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 the right fit for, for, the, for the company. And I think in my experience, always the mistakes happen when you rushed, when you rush the process. Mm-hmm. And this happens a lot when you have this, this urgency in startups, I need to grow, I need to hire because I need to you know, increase my velocity for, for product building. And you end up saying, oh, this is, a, this is the candidate, I need to hire them. When in reality, you should say, this is not the best candidate, I should still keep on pushing and I'll have to wait a couple of months without having someone. This always ends up being, in my experience, a better decision than hiring someone faster. Um, and uh, it's always better to wait a bit and make sure you, when you take the decision at the moment, T, that you're going to hire, that you are 100% convinced. It's not a rush decision. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, are there any, uh, you know, dynamics of fintech industry, which, which you wish you had known uh, before you started MAST? Um, yeah, so very funny enough, um, so... Uh, I come from financial services. I come from capital markets and everything. And the pace is fast. Things happen really fast in capital markets. And I completely underestimated, overestimated the speed of things happening in other sides of financial services. Um, In retail banking, things take so much more time. Um, And for me, this was this was very different. I was not expecting things to be that slow. People take time to reply. Things take a lot of time and it's just because it's a different speed. Um, I adapted to this quite, quite quickly, so that's fine. But if I think if I had to know, if I had known this a bit earlier, I would have done things a bit differently in the early stages to try and get to, cons- to customers a bit faster um, or a bit differently. Um, that's, that's, I think, yeah, that. Interesting. And uh, I, I quickly wanted to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? My fit, yeah, my first business book is very intelligent. It's an old book from a Chicago tradesman, so a pork cattle tradesman back in the, in the, the 20th century. The book is called Letters from a Self-Made Merchant to His Son from George Horace Lorimer. So it's a very interesting book because it's a book from a very big businessman back in the days who basically wrote letters to his son, giving him life and, princip- and, and principles and advice on how to deal with business and how to deal with people. And you realize, like often happens, the best advice is timeless. Um, and the best advice survived the times and which Nassim Taleb called the Lindy effect, which yeah. means that the more an idea is here, the more it's gonna stay in the future. And this is an amazing book because it's done before the computer ages, but all the principles still apply. And, and I love this book. Wonderful, we'll put it in our show notes. and. Um, 
if you could go back in time when you started past what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently um it's a bit of a hard question because we're quite an early stage company um so i i don't i don't have honestly many regrets or anything that i thought I was like oh this should we should have done differently um it's it's a tough question because i think i'll i'll be able to answer you this in two or three years it's a bit hard to say right now always and uh, what's your favorite uh, online tool for example gmail slack zoom um There's two tools I really like. One is not really online. It's like a shortcut, as a keyboard shortcut for Mac called Magnet. I can't, I can't live without Magnet because uh, when you deal with a lot of documents and windows, it's just with with the with the arrows and the control, just moving windows around and putting it in half half or a third and and boxes. And I've got so used to it that I just can't not use it anymore. This is number one. And then the second one, I would say. If, online would be boomerang so i know people like calendly i think it's great but i don't like to give control to my calendar to people so the great thing about boomerang is that when you send meeting requests you can choose the slots you want to give and they can choose from the slots and directly from the email so i like that because um i don't want to people end up booking whenever things they want in my calendar um so i love that tool it's been now i can't i can't live without it interesting I've, i've never heard about magnet i'm going to i'm going to uh, use it uh, after the show uh, and uh, uh, joe what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about us yeah so i'm on twitter at joeabisab.com or on linkedin joe joseph abisab people can send me a um a message there got it we'll, we'll put that in the show notes joe thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us i really enjoyed my conversation with you thanks for having me rohit Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.